Amen. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Ben, for leading us in song this morning. Good morning again, Bailey. Glad to be with you. Uh, glad to worship with you this morning, open God's word with you. Grateful for uh, the opportunity to do so. Pastor Jared and his family are away on vacation. Um, I think, I know many of you are looking forward to, to coming here this morning and giving him a hard time about LSU losing to UCLA last night. Um, I know why I was. Um, but I guess, you know, if you're a UNC fan or a Duke fan, you can't really laugh too much. <laughs> Wolfpack came out on top this weekend. Um, Pastor Marty would be proud. Um, Bayleaf, it's, uh, it's good to be here. It's good to gather again another week. Let's open God's word. Let's come uh, before his word ready to receive. Um, the past four weeks, as you know, we've, we've gone through, as Pastor Jared has led us through, uh, the four pursuits of the early church. All right, and we saw really a, a powerful picture of what happens when the gospel takes root in community, right? It's called the church. It was a, it was a picture of uh, the gospel at work in community. This week, we're, we're going to narrow that down a little bit and look at what happens when the gospel takes root on an individual level, right? What happens when the gospel takes root personally? And we see that on display in the book of Philemon. You can be turning there right now, book of Philemon, it's right before Hebrews. So if you can find Hebrews, it's the tiny little letter tucked in right before it. And we'll see this morning an example of a demonstration of the gospel in action. In 1846, a poet named uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, have you heard of her? She uh, married a man named Robert Browning, and her father disapproved of this marriage so strongly that he actually disowned his daughter and this crushed Elizabeth and so she for 10 years every week she would write a letter to her parents begging for and, and pleading with them for reconciliation begging that they would just hear her heart and, and give Robert a chance after 10 years she received a box in the mail and she opened the box and inside it was were, were all the letters that she had ever written. And they were all unopened. And reconciliation never took place. And so Elizabeth was left with the question, what if they had just opened the letters? What if they had just read the contents of the letters? What if they had heard my heart? Reconciliation might have been possible. Why didn't they just open it? Well, we come to a man this morning named Philemon who receives a letter calling for radical reconciliation. And we can be sure that Philemon opened that letter. We can be sure that reconciliation took place because you and I have it preserved for us this morning. You see, Philemon is in our Bible to give us a picture, a demonstration of the gospel on display. It is the cross in action. In fact, when we open our Bible as a whole, what we find central to it is this act of reconciliation that we see demonstrated in Philemon. We see a God whose ultimate desire is to redeem and to make all things new and to reconcile all things to himself. And he did that through the cross. And it is through that reality, it is in that truth of who God is and what he is doing that Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians 5 ministers of reconciliation. That's what you and I are. Ministers of reconciliation. And so the Christian life is meant to then display the heart and purposes of God 
every day. And so we want to ask the question this morning as we look at Philemon, what does it look like for the gospel to be on display in our life? Philemon is a living testimony of what happens when gospel takes root within us. We're asking the question, what does it look like for us to display the gospel, to put it on center stage in our life, in everyday life? Now, before we jump into the text, I do want to give you context, just to give a framework for what we're about to read. Uh, Philemon is, is Paul's shortest letter, uh, but though it's, it's small, it is mighty, it is powerful. Uh, scholar N.T. Wright says, if we lost every book in the New Testament except for Philemon, uh, we could deduce a great amount of this, about what this gospel message is, just from these 25 verses, because it's a powerful picture. Philemon was a, a wealthy man who, who came to know Christ through the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. And at some point moved over to Colossae and, and there he planted a church and now has a house church gathered in his home. And at some point he had a slave named Onesimus who we'll read about. And, and this man, the slave, wronged him in some way, stole from him perhaps, and fled, ran away. And it just so happens that he went to Rome. And it just so happens that he met Paul. And Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. And Paul begins to learn his story. He hears what's going on in Onesimus' life. He learns that he's a runaway slave. And he starts connecting some dots. He says, oh, I know your master. I know Philemon. To which Onesimus would have said, okay, well, you got to be quiet, man. Like, you can't tell anybody. I don't want you writing a letter to Philemon. And what does Paul do? The exact opposite, right? The other day I was in my kitchen and my little girl came in. She's four years old. And she asked for some, cho some chocolate chips. And dads, if you have a daughter and you figured out how to say no to them, just come help me. Come let me know, all right? Um, so I, I just can't do it. So she came and asked, and I said, all right, sweetie. And then I looked around to see if the boys were anywhere in sight. Um, because if they heard me go into the pantry, they would, you know, descend like locusts and just devour everything. So I, I went to the pantry, and I got her some chocolate chips, and I said, okay, sweetie, just eat these quickly. Keep it quiet. All right? Keep this to yourself. And what does she do? She goes to her brothers and boasts in the fact that dad gave her a gift. Dad gave her a treat. She couldn't keep it silent, right? That's how Paul views this situation. This is not a moment to keep silent. This is an opportunity to display the power of the reconciling gospel. This is not a moment to keep to ourselves on this and this. This is why the gospel is here. We can put it on display, center stage, so that the community and the world around us can see what happens in Christ. We can see reconciliation take place against all odds. And so Paul writes this letter to display the gospel in action. He writes Colossians and he writes Philemon. And he gives them both to Onesimus. He says, take them to Philemon, please. So he's shaking in his hand. He's got these letters and he goes to Philemon. And in the contents of the letter, it calls for Onesimus' freedom. Drop the punishments, receive Onesimus into your home. That's insane. That's unthinkable. If that were to happen, this would be a dream come true for Onesimus. He doesn't have to run anymore. He doesn't have to live in fear anymore. 
He doesn't even have to deal with the punishment. But Paul doesn't even stop there, does he? He actually asks Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother, as a family member. Are you kidding me? That's unimaginable. Actually, that's offensive that he would ask such a thing. A rebel slave who wronged me is now going to be my family member? This is the gospel, though, isn't it? It is so far-reaching. God's love is so deep and wide that it even offends us sometimes. The people we see as problems, God sees as image bearers, bringing them into his family. So Paul encourages Onesimus, excuse me, encourages Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother. It is the gospel at work. It is a picture. It is a demonstration of the cross in action. So we're going to ask the question, read through it, asking the question, what does it look like for us to display this gospel? What does it look like for us to be demonstrating the cross in everyday life? All right? We're going to read beginning in verse 4. I'll read through verse 20. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. You can uh, circle that, underline it, highlight it. That's really the point of the letter, to see what an effective faith looks like. When we share in the faith together this morning, building one another up, encouraging one another, and when we testify of our faith publicly... It's an effective faith. That's what we are seeing in Philemon. So may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required. Yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of, uh, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. A picture of radical reconciliation. Again, I'll ask the question, what does it look like for us to display the gospel in our life? It's a question that causes us to sit and think for a minute, doesn't it? I could ask it another way. I could say, what does it look like to be a Christian? And we could begin to rattle off things probably pretty quickly, right? Well, eat, uh, read your Bible, uh, pray, go to church, eat Chick-fil-A, right? The Christian things. 
And we could reduce Christianity to these things that we go and we do. But when I ask how the gospel's on display, it flips the question on its head, right? Because the gospel is not about what you have the ability to go and do. It's about what God has done for us. So really, we're confronted with whether or not this gospel message has transformed our hearts. That's where Philemon is. As he opens this letter and he reads the contents. Is this a man who's simply going to remain content in his religious culture and context and just go through the motions? Or is this a man who's been transformed? Is this a man who knows the power of forgiveness from Christ and then can extend forgiveness to another? That's what we want to see this morning. So we see in Paul's letter, I think, three ways that he approaches Philemon. And three ways that we can then display this gospel, demonstrate the gospel in our life. So let's first consider Paul's approach in verse 8. We display the gospel when we approach others in humility. We display the gospel when we approach others in humility. Former monk Thomas Merton said, Pride makes us artificial. Humility makes us real. That's what Paul's doing in this situation. Notice he doesn't come demanding reconciliation. He doesn't come exercising his apostolic authority, laying down the law, saying, look, Philemon, bring this man back into your home because I said so. He doesn't come demanding. He comes appealing to Philemon for the sake of love. He's bringing Philemon into the arena, if you will, and allowing him to be the one pursuing and enabling reconciliation. Right? He even says, I don't want you to do this out of your own compulsion. I don't want you to do this because I said so. This is the nature of the gospel, right? This is, in its essence, what Jesus has done for us. He didn't lay down a legal document and demand anything. He came and he appealed through love because ultimately he's after genuine conversion, genuine reconciliation, authentic faith. That's what Paul wants to see here, a real reconciliation, not something fake, not something forced, not some transaction. He wants to see the gospel lived out. N.T. Wright says, to quote him again, he says, living Christianly makes people more human, not less. No Christian should grumble at extra demands of love. They are golden opportunities to draw on the reserves of divine love. And in so doing, to become more fully oneself in Christ. More completely in the image of God. More authentically human. You see, Paul is not approaching Philemon as some slave master who needs to be fixed. And he's not approaching Onesimus as some useless slave that needs charity. He's approaching them as image bearers who need reconciliation, who need forgiveness, who need the gospel. You see, when we are driven by the gospel, when, our, when the gospel is our motive, it takes those people that we see as problems to be fixed and it allows us to see them as image bearers who need love who need redemption who need reconciliation right I'm sure at some point you've looked at your spouse or your kid or your friends and thought if, if I could just fix you if, I, if you would just act this way if you would just think this way if you would just do this everything would be okay 
And we treat them as this project that needs to be fixed, right? And ultimately, we're just trying to conform them into our image rather than see them transformed into the image of Christ. I'm sure there were many nights for Philemon where he lie awake in bed thinking what he would do if he could get his hands on Onesimus. How dare he do what he did? It would have been so easy to reduce Onesimus to a piece of property that needed to be dealt with, right? Rather than an image bearer in need of forgiveness, in need of love, in need of mercy. I don't know if you remember the testimony a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, where Pastor Jared showed us the the lady in the video who, who said how thankful she was that the Christian family who brought her in didn't treat her like a, a project, but treated her like a person. They humanized her. This is the way the gospel came to us in the first place. He didn't come making demands. Christ came in humility. He didn't treat us as objects or projects or robots. The gospel came and dwelt among us, was patient with us, entered into the complexity of our emotions, engaged the ugliness of our sin, dealt with it on the cross. He approached us in humility. Philippians 2 reminds us of this, right? Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. You see, the gospel compels us to approach others the way that Christ has approached us in humility. This is the way Paul is approaching Philemon. Now, sidebar for a moment. You might be thinking, Stephen, this, this issue at hand is so cut and dry that there really is no need for any discussion or conversation. I mean, we're talking about slavery here, right? We're talking about a great injustice. Shouldn't Paul just say, Philemon, what are you thinking? You're a man of God. How dare you uphold this unjust institution? Receive this man. He doesn't even say slavery's wrong. Because Paul ultimately knows that Writing a position paper on why slavery is wrong is not going to fix the issue. Instead, he aims at its roots. He appeals through love. The way in which we battle injustices in our land is the way that they did it against Rome. They attacked the foundations. They saturated it with the gospel so that it would erode from the very core and crumble upon itself. And only the gospel can do that. You see, we have to plant gospel seeds to uproot the sin that allows injustice to continue. That's how we solve those issues, right? Every personal battle, every political battle, every global battle we see take place ultimately has its roots in sin. And the only way to see redemption, reconciliation, and restitution is through the gospel. That is why we walk in faith. That is why we are people who use the gospel, and believe the gospel as the power of God unto salvation. So second, as we move forward, we see again, Paul in verse 15. We display the gospel first by approaching people in humility, next by trusting God fully. All right, trusting God fully. Read verse 15 with me. He says, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, 
Do you see how Paul is interpreting this situation? He sees very clearly that the, the handprints, the fingerprints of God are all over this situation. Right? He immediately recognizes the sovereignty of God at work. He knows Onesimus has found him not by chance, not by coincidence, but by divine intervention. He understands God is at work. Therefore, the gospel must be elevated. Right? Onesimus has found me for a reason. This is an opportunity to display the power of the gospel. He sees God's sovereignty at work, and he trusts in it. When I read Philemon preparing for this message, I, I immediately thought of the movie um, I Can Only Imagine. I'm sure most of you, all of you have heard the song I Can Only Imagine, right? But not as many know the story behind the song. Um, the song was written by a man named Bart Miller, lead singer of Mercy Me. Um, and his story, the movie, communicates that Bart, Bart's story really is one of, of reconciliation. But beneath that is the sovereign hand of God at work in a very messed up, broken situation. God's sovereignty is orchestrating and moving pieces all around for his good and for God's glory. So in the movie, we see that Bart grows up in a really dysfunctional home, right? And his dad is abusive and uh, beats him and verbally abuses him, physically abuses him. His mom runs away. So it's just Bart and his dad. Eventually, in high school, he discovers his gift in music. Um, and he begins to pursue that. Not as, an, not as a way of, of glorifying God, but really as an escape from his life. Uh, it was his functional savior in a lot of ways. And so at some point, he, he pursues this. Music takes him to another city. Meanwhile, his dad's still at home. But God begins working on his heart behind the scenes, softening this man. And then there's a scene in the movie where it looks like Bart and his band are about to make it big, right? They're about to get signed. But these Nashville labels reject them. They're stopped in their tracks. Bart is discouraged. That leads him to go back home. That moment of rejection leads him to go face his father. And what he finds is a man that he didn't even know. A true quote from that movie is when Bart says, my, my dad was a monster. And then he became a man I wanted to become. That's reconciliation that only the gospel could produce. But more than that act of reconciliation is the sovereign hand of God working in every aspect of that story. Just like he's working in every little aspect in your life. The question is, do you trust it? Do you trust his sovereignty? Do you trust that even in your rebellion, his sovereignty is pursuing you? Right? Onesimus is on the run. Jonah was on the run. And God's sovereignty is tracking them down. Do you trust his sovereignty in your life that he's orchestrating and he's weaving all these pieces together for your good? The Bible clearly shows us this. Genesis 37. When Joseph's brothers throw him into the pit, right, and then sell him into slavery. Surely he wasn't thinking in that moment, this is exactly how I imagined my career as king beginning, right? Absolutely not. He was probably wondering, God, what are you doing? Where are you? But in his sovereignty, he was at work in the midst of brokenness and injustice. Moses' story, his mom abandons him, just hoping that he'll live. Not only does he live, but he's found by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in Pharaoh's palace, so that one day he would grow up and be the one to look upon the injustice of his people and be the ones to deliver them out. 
God is sovereign. Or David, all that time spent in a field, shepherding, learning how to sling a rock so that one day he would be the one to take down Goliath. God's sovereignty is at work. Do you see it? Do you trust it? Romans 8, 28 tells us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe he's good? I think we do doctrinally. Do we, do, do we believe it functionally? We are conditioned to think that no one really has our best interests in mind. We've lived long enough to know that people don't keep their word. They let us down. So we project that onto God. And we don't always really believe that at his core, he is good. But I want to challenge you this morning. He is. Receive it. Trust it. Rest in it. He is good. He has your best intentions in mind. For your good. For his glory. Now his good towards you is not necessarily demonstrated in health or wealth or prosperity. Right? If that's true, then he hates most of the world. He hated his own son then. His goodness towards you is demonstrated in his long-suffering, his faithfulness towards you, his patience, his mercy, his grace, his love, his compassion, the cross. That's his goodness towards you. That is a promise for you to receive this morning. So Paul sees the sovereign hand at work here in this situation. Knows that this is a moment for the gospel to be on display. We can see that Philemon here has the opportunity then to extend forgiveness. Onesimus has the opportunity to restore what was taken and repent. They both have the opportunity to experience reconciliation as brothers. The cross lived out. We have to remember that the gospel is not only forgiveness of sin. This story is not just about Philemon forgiving. The gospel is also a story of adoption. You see, not only are you and I justified in the courtroom of God, we are adopted into the living room of the king. That's the gospel. That's the picture we see in Philemon. This is in our Bible to show us what the gospel looks like in action. So lastly, let's continue down to verse 18. We see the gospel on display in our life, in our desires. We see the gospel on display in what we desire most. All right, look. Verse 18 says, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Paul's desire above everything is to see genuine gospel reconciliation take place with two people he may never see again. He's not sitting here complaining about his circumstances. His desire ultimately is to see the gospel lived out, to see others experience the power of forgiveness, the power of reconciliation in Christ. That's his ultimate desire. What is our ultimate desire? Are we ultimately concerned with seeing the gospel take root in our lives, in our families, in our community? Do we want to see redemption happen and reconciliation take place in the world around us, 
is that our ultimate desire? We see a, a God in the Bible whose ultimate desire is to restore, is to redeem, is to make all things new, is to reconcile all things to himself. That's who he is. That's what he does. And so you and I display God's desires. We are called to reflect the love we've been given, to extend the forgiveness we've received, to display the reconciliation that has taken place in our lives because of Christ. What's your ultimate desire? For some of us here this morning, we've read through this story and and you find yourself in the position of Philemon. You've been wronged and you're angry and you're resentful. Your heart has grown cold. Well, today today is the day forgiveness can happen. Today is a day where reconciliation can take place. Others of you might find yourself in the position of, of Onesimus. You've been the, wrong, the person who've, who's hurt someone, who's wronged someone. You're on the run. You're avoiding it. You're letting the tension exist. Today is the day reconciliation can take place. Repent. Experience why the cross is the cross. Be reconciled. Thankfully, all of us have someone in the position of Paul. Someone who can mediate reconciliation. Someone who can pay the debt and restore anything. Paul desired reconciliation so much that he was willing to take on whatever payment or punishment or consequence that it meant. We have a God who is willing to stand in harm's way. We have a God who went to any length necessary for reconciliation. It is the gospel. So just as Philemon and Onesimus stood side by side as brothers in their community. So other people saw once a former slave and a former slave master, now they see brothers just testifying to their society and to their community what the power of the gospel can do. You and I do the same thing, standing in our community, in our homes, in our workplaces as followers of Jesus, just radiating and testifying to the forgiveness and reconciliation that we have. In Christ. I, uh, I began with a poet. I'm going to end with a poet. We sang about amazing grace. Today. There's the author of that hymn. Many of you might know. John Newton wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. Amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found. Was blind but now I see. Newton, John Newton, like Philemon, participated in the slave industry. He upheld that injustice. He participated in it. He was a slave trader from Africa to America. Until God sovereignly intervened in his life and saved him through a violent storm at sea. Shortly after, he wrote the song Amazing Grace. But he, he took the lyrics of that song that he wrote and he built it composed it on what's called the pentatonic scale. The pentatonic scale is a five-note scale. It's the black keys on your piano. It's simple. The pentatonic scale was often referred to as the slave scale in early America because it's where a lot of the African music came from. It was what a lot of those spirituals were built on. So Newton decided that he was going to put his lyrics on that scale, and that was his way of saying 
that God's grace is so powerful and amazing and unbelievable that it covers even my past evils and sins and injustices. Church, his grace is sufficient. His love is far-reaching. The gospel is greater than your sin. Receive that. Trust that. If we want to see God at work in our country or around the world, it starts with the local church displaying the gospel here in our community. Would you pray with me, Bailey? Father, we're so grateful that you are a God who approached us humbly. Lord, as a baby, you came to us. Not making demands, but appealing to us through love for God to love the world. Father, we thank you for your love. Lord, change our hearts so that we may be people who are demonstrating the radical reconciliation that took place with Philemon and Onesimus. God, that took place on the cross. May we be a people who are living out the gospel in our everyday life. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who are contemplating and they're stuck in this sinful cycle or they want to get out. They don't know if they have the courage or the faith to get out, but I pray now in the name of Jesus that you would break those chains and God, that you would deliver them. Lord, I pray that you would reconcile them to yourself and they would trust that your grace is greater than their sin. God, that the gospel is for them and you are a good and gracious God. Father, as we sing together and share this last moment together, I pray you'd your spirit would minister to our hearts. God, may we respond as you lead. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In a moment, we'll stand and we'll sing. And I ask that you would be receptive to the spirit. May he speak, guide, lead you as he convicts or encourages or affirms. I pray you would respond accordingly. I'll be down here. I would love to pray or talk with you. Um, but come as the spirit leads.